0: Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to episode 60 of Conquering Columbus. Uh, it's kind of crazy that we made it this far, and uh, this episode, we talk with Alex Bandar of the Columbus Idea Foundry, and Alex is a really intelligent guy, he has a lot of wisdom to share with us, and we end up getting lost down some rabbit holes, whether that be the ketogenic diet, or what computational metallurgy entails, but uh, I think you guys are really going to enjoy this episode, it's a lot of fun, uh, we hope you learn a lot, and most of all, we hope you enjoy it. But before we dive into that, I want to take a moment and remind you all, go ahead and look at whatever podcast app you're listening to this on. Click that subscribe button. It really helps us out, and it'll make sure you guys never miss a single episode of Conquering Columbus. The last thing we want to do before we get this episode rolling is take a moment to thank all of our incredible sponsors here at Conquering Columbus. And that starts with AWH. AWH are builders of exceptional digital products for the web and mobile that drive business for select growth companies. With over 4,500 applications developed and 10 million users enjoying AWH applications, they are focused on solving problems and improving lives through better software applications. If you want to find out more about AWH, check out awh.net which will be linked in the show notes and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you.
1: Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. For those of you who don't know who they are, the Sundown Group is an Ohio nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, talent, and capital through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout Ohio. More information on the web at sundownfirst.org. And our last sponsor is Facilities Management Express, or FMX for short. FMX is actually founded and headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio. They're a startup software company. What's really cool about them is a lot of competitors in this space, but they made a name for themselves by designing an easy-to-use and tailored-fit facilities maintenance and management software. They serve industries ranging from churches and schools to property management, to manufacturing, and fast casual restaurants. You can learn more or check out a free trial at gofmx.com.
0: Mike here again. And if you want to be a sponsor of Conquering Columbus and have your message heard by conquerors across the city please reach out to me at mike at conquering and one last thing before we get this episode rolling conquerors we want to hear from you there will be a quick survey in the show notes of today's episode and if you guys could fill that out for us we'd really appreciate it all right conquerors let's get the show on the road
1: You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo. A desire to not be average. This
0: is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to another episode of Conquering Columbus. And our guest today is Alex Bandar, uh, he's the founder and CEO at the Columbus Idea Foundry. And the Idea Foundry is a place where uh, anyone can explore their urge to make things. And that's directly from their website. Uh, it focuses on providing a space and support for artists, artisans, techies, entrepreneurs, anyone who's looking to build something. And uh, before founding the Idea Foundry in 2008, Alex was a senior research scientist at the Scientific Forming Technologies Corporation. And he completed his undergrad at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. I probably pronounced that wrong, so don't butcher me. Um, and, and then he headed to Lehigh University for his graduate studies. But welcome to Conquering Columbus, Alex.
2: We're excited to have you on the show today. Thank you very much, Mike. And I appreciate you asking how to pronounce my name before we started. I should have told you how to pronounce Rensselaer also. Rensselaer, uh, yeah, Or see? just RPI. <laughs> RPI. I like that
0: better. I'm going to go with RPI from now on.
2: But uh, how's your day going so far? You know, uh, its it's a pretty typical day. Uh, had a uh, management meeting this morning. We have a once-a-week meeting with our uh, management and then a, a once-a-week meeting with our staff and then a delivery truck drove through some low-hanging power lines and uh, ripped those out. So we had a little excitement with uh, Columbus Fire and Columbus PD and then gave a tour to a bunch of uh, docents from the Wexner Center and then made a business pitch to a delegation of 60 Chinese folks um, who are looking to set up shop maybe in Ohio. So that's a pretty, it's its what's typical these days now and I, and I love it.
1: <laughs> so following up from the low-hanging power lines and uh, bringing the Chinese folks that are thinking about setting up shop down here, you know, it, Franklin's a really unique area where you, some areas kind of seem like, well, I don't know, and then like you got all these things going on developing happening in one area where it's real nice the other area it's not. so. I'm not surprised about the low-hanging power lines, but I'm interested <laughs> on how the Chinese individuals kind of thought about the area and what their uh, feedback
2: was. You know, uh, so Smart Columbus is the, uh, they're the recipient of the Smart City Award. And I don't know if folks know that Columbus competed with about 70 other cities from San Francisco to Pittsburgh um, to be the recipient of 50 million bucks from the feds, which were met with about half a billion dollars of in-kind monies promised by OSU, by Patel, by AEP, and they're, uh, they're fixing to make Columbus the smartest city in, in the US. Connected grids, um, open data sets, sharing information from places like Coda to the high school graduation rates to what employers are hiring. So you have this kind of operating system that makes sure the city is just being run intelligently. And their offices are at the Idea Foundry. We're proud of that. And because of them, uh, folks from all over the US, folks from all over the world are coming to visit and say, A, how do you get that grant? What do you write in your proposal? And B, what are you doing to achieve it? And uh, we're getting uh, visits from Abu Dhabi, from uh, cities all around the world, and uh, you know, Barcelona, and we're grateful that we're we're starting to get invites to go visit there also. So we pitch the neighborhood as a startup neighborhood or an innovation community that's got COSI, you know, one of the most beautiful buildings uh, in Columbus, and then you've got 400 West Rich which creates beautiful stuff, but has a much more, you know, industrial-looking feel. So when you've got science and art and technology and education and enterprise all within a five-block radius, uh, that's, a, that's a pretty special thing, especially when you add land-grant brewing, strong water, bar, uh, food and spirits, rehab tavern. Uh, you can bend an elbow at the end of the day and, uh, and make some creative collisions. So that's uh, it's getting some attention.
0: Yeah, I like that. I like that term, creative collisions. But it's funny, you know, how how much Franklinton's changed in just the past five years, even. And it'll be interesting to see where it's going here in the next uh, five or ten years in the future here. But uh, one place we really like to start out, we kind of like to bring it back, take a step back, and talk a little bit about kind of what your life looked like growing up, what led you to choose uh, Rensselaer Polytechnic <laughs> Institute, and uh, what you studied at Lehigh. So, can you walk us through kind of? what things were like as a child all the way up through graduating from Lehigh.
2: Sure, sure. So I was, uh, as you can imagine, that kind of geeky kid who loved science fiction books and movies and uh, was actually jealous of folks who lived in those worlds I could see. Star Wars, Blade Runner, Aliens. I'm like, that looks like a cool-ass place. Robots do whatever you want them to do. Machines 3D print or make anything you need in Star Trek. Um, you know, the the kind of Tony Stark, Iron Man software, or the Mission Impossible. No, no, it's the... Uh, Uh, other, what was the Minority Report kind of augmented reality stuff. So I figured I want to be one of those people who helps usher in that era of tech that I thought was so cool looking. So I went to college. Um, This was after working in our family restaurant. So dad's Arabic, uh, mom's American, and dad bought a Greek and Arabic restaurant, which uh, was where we really grew up. So Here in uh, Central uh, Iowa? It's actually in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, so originally from Boston. And uh, my brother's the one who got the accent. Uh, I got the, the baldness. Uh, but um, <laughs> the, uh, uh, the restaurant was a whole lot of fun. And the reason I mention it, we're going to jump forward to the Idea Foundry later. Um, but then went to college and you know, wanted to make jetpacks and flying cars and all that stuff. And realized pretty quickly, you can actually design nearly anything. Uh, but the things that you can build are limited by what today's materials can support. So you can design. Uh, you know, a hundred story or a hundred mile skyscraper. You can't build it. Steel's not strong enough. You can make a design, an airplane with a mile wide wingspan. Again, the aluminum won't hold it. Um, So I thought, let me go into materials science and if I can make a new material that's got more conductive copper or stronger carbon fiber, that'd be like adding another color to the palette that all the other engineering disciplines are painting with. And I thought that'd be cool. I thought it'd be fun. I was naive as hell to think that I could do it, but uh, eventually um, studied material science at RPI, then went to Lehigh University uh, and studied computational metallurgy. So that's a, that's a great way to stop conversations at parties. Pretty much you take the physics out of a metallurgy textbook, put it in JavaScript, and make a simulator that allows a manufacturer to see what it would look like to make products in their factory and actually virtually test how strong those products are made before they spend a dollar on tooling or on buildings or on people. And that's what brought me to Columbus to get a job at uh, scientific forming. It was a small Battelle startup from 20, 30 years ago, Uh, but uh, that uh, was all virtual. And my sister, while I studied industrial metallurgy, she became an artistic metalsmith. Uh, So sculpture, jewelry, things like that, and uh, teaches in Vermont. And about 12 years ago, she said, hey, you know all the science of metals, how about you teach my art students the science of what we call heat and beat. So heat up a piece of steel, hit it with a hammer and forge it into a sword, or heat up some silver and smith it into a bracelet. And I had a a new PhD and a giant ego, and I said, "Eh, I'll go teach your artists to be practical. Yeah, I can go do that. And uh, the first minute of my first presentation I I realized I could teach them nothing useful and they were all better welders and machinists and builders than I was. So if I had an idea, maybe I could write a computer program about it. If they had an idea, they just made the damn thing. And that (laughs) made me uh, more than a little embarrassed, more than a lot jealous, and was the seed for um, starting a place where I could learn to make stuff with my own tools.
1: So usually we can jump into here with some very sophisticated questions and kind of analyze, you know, what you did during your college and your Ph.D., but I don't think I even want to try to dive into kind of what that was like. (laughs) But I guess maybe a couple things that I'm interested in. During your time achieving your Ph.D., um, what were your kind of – don't you have to go through a certain thesis or a certain project, and kind of what was that focused on for you? Yeah, yeah. So… Can we understand that? (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
2: you know, uh, there's a great saying, and I don't mean this – if you can't explain it to a five-year-old, you don't understand it. So, not that you guys are five-year-olds, but uh, like, it's it's the mark of it someone. Depends who really on who you ask. Probably debatable. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. Some people might suggest otherwise, but <laughs> um, yeah. So, actually, um, was really interested in in plastics that conduct electricity when I was at RPI, and that's actually the opposite of what they normally do. Normally, plastics mm-hmm. are a good insulator, but there are some funky ones that have some neat properties. So. Tinkered around with those for a while and um, wasn't really getting anywhere. I had some ideas, but one of my professors, when I was at RPI, got a job to go to Lehigh University and start back up a defunct institute for metal forming that was started by a storied uh, metallurgy professor named Betzalel Abedzer, a great uh, Israeli professor who, who uh, came to Lehigh. But it had been kind of defunct for 20 years, and he got some funds to go restart it and invited me to come uh, be his first PhD student. So it was a bit of a pivot from the kind of high tech, you know, these like glowing plastics, you know, make a a synthetic neuron. And uh, I thought, well, metals, like that's kind of like heavy and old fashioned. I didn't think it was high tech. But uh, the more I looked at it, I thought it'd be really cool to start an institute to be a kind of business within a university where we're conversing with industry that has questions, so we're both learning academic stuff, doing real research, and providing an industrial value. So I went to Lehigh, uh, loved it, and um, didn't realize it's in the Lehigh Valley, Uh, Bethlehem Steel is a huge factory uh, that at one point was the largest producer of ships in the world and the second largest producer of steel. And uh, they have a great research lab, so we have a big relationship, and I figured I would become a metallurgist, I'd get all this uh, kind of interesting knowledge, and I'd work at Beth Steel right across the river from from my grad lab, and, uh, and then live my life. And while I was polishing my samples and doing our, you know, staying up late and studying, I could see the factory through my graduate lab window, uh, they went bankrupt. And I said, ah, oh, okay, is that the way the wind is blowing? I'd better learn something more innovative. Uh, that you know, the, the career path I thought was conventional, manufacturing you know, was, was gonna be a great way to uh, earn a living. So I pivoted a bit and uh, figured, this was around late 90s, early aughts, the web was becoming a thing, uh, Java programmers were making good money. So I thought, I bet I'll make more money and I'll have a better career as a Java programmer than a PhD metallurgist. So I taught myself Java. And that's when I first started making software that simulated these processes. But more importantly, when I learned, uh, the the whole way you can learn a computer program, uh, you can learn it for free. And you can actually, the tools you need to quote unquote write a computer program, compile it, and turn it into uh, an app or an executable, all those tools are free. And I didn't know that. And all the instruction manuals, all the videos, they're all free too. And so when I realized, uh, that was pretty cool and empowering, and I started teaching myself. Staying up late, hit a bug, get kind of tired, and I was going to turn in one night. And then it occurred to me, if I can download these tools, if I can learn to do this for free, and all I needs is the internet, someone in Ho Chi Minh City, or someone in Sao Paulo, or someone uh, in a you know, another part of the world. These are the winter. cities
1: that you think about when you're tired and about right. <laughs> <laughs> Well,
2: I tell you, they're places with hardworking, smart people where the fair market wage is much lower than in the US and they will stay up later and they will be a better programmer and they'll charge less. I thought that's my competition. So this is where the world being flat is a two-edged sword. The world opens itself up to be a market for my services, but equally every other hardworking smart person is also in that pool. So that was a kind of the first hint of how, how really aggressive, you, you can't just work, You know, people say, you know, work hard or work smart. You know, work smart, not hard. I think you have to do both. I think you have to work hard and smart. But it was my first introduction to online learning, which uh, we now embrace every day at the Foundry. Um, I call YouTube the world's university now. You know, you can learn art history to artificial intelligence for free for fun. Um, So uh, that's kind of what, uh, what I did at Lehigh, was to take the traditional... Metallurgical principles of how people design alloys and how they process metals for aerospace, maritime, consumer products, automotive. Um, And then I put a kind of 21st century dot com spin on it by making an app for that. And there is, in fact, an app for that now. And uh, so, uh, and this is also a lesson where I think innovation comes from someone or a couple people who have a foot in two different worlds. You know, if you just hang out with people like you, uh, who have studied the same things, who watch the same movies, who vote the same, you know, you're not going to learn anything. But if you hang out with people different than you, that's when you get the perspection, uh, pers- uh, perception or perspective of something wholly different and uh, a left field kind of idea strikes you. So I was both a metallurgist and a computer programmer. And so I had that kind of creative um, opportunity to make a, a new type of uh, Venn diagram overlap in, uh, in industry. And that's, again, something we embrace regularly.
1: So <clears throat> two questions following from that, I don't have a pen, so I'm going to tell you well, I guess I do. But I have two of them I'm going to tell you at once, just so I don't forget them. First one, I'm curious to see or hear what your approach is when you are venturing into a new project, like teaching yourself how to code. Because I think a lot of people come up with these audacious ideas, and they get excited. But not only does the motivation go away, but it becomes very overwhelming when you're faced with a massive amount of information. But I think once, or when I met a lot of people who have Achieve masters and PhDs, they found a way to kind of take mass amounts of information and break it down into like analytical steps and make it comprehensible. So I'd like to kind of hear your approach on that. And I'd also like to hear in your programming, how are you developing something that could just analyze the strengths of these different metals? I mean, we don't have to dive into too much detail because I want to get to the idea of foundry. I think that's interesting. But is it just a matter of putting in the different um, thresholds of these metals and then the chemical compounds and then it like, computes what each compound does and then
2: can spit something out for you you know that's that's uh two great questions and i'll i'll try my best to answer both if um, i'm
1: close in the second you can give me a phd
2: <laughs> an honorary one I'll, I'll print you out i'll 3d print you out uh, a <laughs> Um but um yeah you know uh doing anything of value is hard uh even if you're passionate about it um so uh and and we recognize that um You know what we call massive open online courses, MOOCs. You might have heard of Khan Academy, which is kind of like high school on YouTube. There are adult versions, um, Udacity, Coursera, EdX, where you can take a college class online. But keeping motivated, you know, they show the numbers. You know, 125,000 people will sign up for a class. uh, 10,000 people will finish it. So it's um, you know it's a tiny fraction. However, it's still Nine thousand eight hundred people more than could have fit in the classroom where it was being taught. So it, it's, you know, it, it's still a good thing. But we encourage people to find workout partners. You know, uh, find someone who'll keep you motivated. Um, I'm, uh, yeah, I, w- I was gonna say I'm a pretty motivated person, but I'm also a pretty procrastinative person. So I might suffer from, uh, you know, high ambitions and yet uh, just don't want to do the work to get there. Of course, you do it. Um, I like, uh, I like incremental progress, so uh, if I need to see that success is coming, then um, give yourself a simple task, learn that bite-sized project like you said, and then getting that gives me the confidence to go on to the next one. Um, that's a good way to learn. Uh, for, it's not always a good way to, to do a project. Sometimes you have to just do the big outline of the whole project first, including the boring stuff, and then plow through it. Um, But, uh, uh, you know, it's funny you ask this because I'm an engineer who has found himself in the business world and I call myself an accidental entrepreneur and, in fact, my blog is Adventures of an Accidental Entrepreneur. And so I wonder if you go to business school, do they teach you project management? Do they teach you uh, Gantt charts and timelines and uh, budget management and time management Uh, Because these are all things I've struggled through. So I'm I'm probably not the best person to ask that question. I'd I'd ask an MBA uh, or someone who's been in in management for 20 or 30 years. Um, But for me, most importantly, just do. Just do something. Get in and find out uh, rather than worrying, can I do it? Eh, Just try it. Uh, Barriers are lower. Um, And uh, then to your question about how do you perform computational metallurgy let's see in, in three minutes or less um, <laughs> so pretty much uh, the, there are two ways and the first way is what we call um, empirical so you observe something you test it and you just measure it uh, and then you have like a lookup table so if you do have steel and let's say you've uh, you have ten different alloys of steel where you throw a little bit extra carbon in each one uh, and then you heat it up to 500 degrees and you put it in what's called a tensile testing machine and you find out what load it fails at and you write that down Um, and you have essentially a grid uh, and then you do that for a few different temperatures a few different alloys and you have this two-dimensional plot pretty much that says as temperature goes up uh, and then as carbon content goes up you have this kind of response surface and so that now you have let's say uh, a metal screw and it's in two pieces of, uh, of sheet metal holding it together and you're trying to predict how strong is it going to, to be before it pulls out if you know well the temperature is 250 degrees maybe it's a bolt in an airplane engine and um, it's this kind of carbon the tested materials failed at that number so we'll just say okay once it reaches that stress uh, then that'll fail. Um, that's a great way to to do this if you have the time money and luxury to do all that testing and testing is expensive um and that only works within the envelope that you've tested so if your simulation goes at a different temperature higher temperature outside your testing envelope um, or a different composition of carbon then those results don't work because you uh, it's like uh trying to get you pull 50 people and you get a, an answer, but then you, you go to a completely different population of folks and ask them in Antarctica. You know, different different answers. The other way is to uh, to capture the physics and actually to try to atom uh, to model how atoms bounce against each other and how those atoms are actually moving back and forth as temperature goes up, as pressure goes up. That is a lot more interesting to me. Uh, it's not just testing things, writing the answers down, and making a lookup table. It's actually Tying together uh, when uh, you know when I hit the brakes in my car and my um, the disc calipers press together. There's pressure. There's heat. There's friction. There's stuff um, breaking away, and the result is it's slowing down my car, but it's making more heat, um, which is reducing its properties. So if you can um, model the physics of every little bit there, then you've got essentially a physical model of reality, <laughs> and uh, and this is very very hard to do. And it requires knowledge of a lot of um, parameters uh, in the physics equations that sometimes you have to kind of guess at. So I think it'll probably be another 50 or 100 years before we have all of the real physics where we can do that wholly from uh, from atoms on up to, uh, to rocket ships. But what's really exciting is if you can do that, you can do something called generative design. And, uh, or we call it um, optimization. So there's actually an Autodesk product. Autodesk is a software CAD package called Dreamcatcher. And so if you can, in fact, simulate how structures perform when they're under load or, uh, or being used and you know how to make those things, then instead of saying, I'm going to design a bicycle and then I'm going to see, is it strong enough to hold me? Can it race the way I want it to? Instead, you say, uh, I want a bicycle with these properties. And then the software actually designs the bike for you and says, well, these are 100 different designs. Uh, pick which ones you like. And there's actually just a week ago, my friend Nick Turner, who designs motorcycles, designs and build them. Uh, he was showing me that like these bizarre organic designs that you'd never, I don't think a human would ever conceive of. But the machine came up with it because it's thinking a thousand different ways than you are. Uh, and it'll tell you, okay, if this is the performance you want then this is the design you want. And then you can go back a step further and say, and these are all the manufacturing processes, the shape of the tooling, the composition of the materials that you need to build it, and this is how you do it. So really, it frees us up for whole ideation. Uh, Right now, machines leverage our power to make heavier and bigger things. Uh, Computers are gonna do the same thing. When they start taking the, the mental busy work out of design or uh or engineering and free us up for what humans are good at which is thinking not just being a a biological computer
1: and i'm sorry that i got us caught up on that (laughs) i'm so interested because like as we move forward in this technology and want to go to mars it's like you get to a point where there's these theories and axioms that can't be dependent upon humans anymore and they really have to be sound and can't have any logical gaps and you got to, if you have a million different attributes coming into one single point that you're trying to prove, it's going to have to take a computer to figure that out, you know. And it's like missions like Apollo or things like that where they didn't account for temperatures mm-hmm, and you mm-hmm. came back into space and people died. So, you know, Mike wants to go to Mars, and you know, if he wants to come back and do more episodes of Conquering Columbus, <laughs> I can't have him dead. So I'm worried about it. It would be
0: a little tough to do Conquering Columbus episodes for Mars since uh, we wouldn't even be able to talk more than, I think it takes like, what is it? Thirty minutes or so to get a message from Mars to, the, well, yeah, with to that Earth. attitude. No, it's <laughs> literally limited by the speed of light. Uh, it be a long podcast. But uh, I guess let's jump into the Idea Foundry. What and can you talk a little bit about from from your time at Lehigh until starting the Idea Foundry? Like, where would the idea come from? Yeah. And yeah. Uh, when did when did you really get started?
2: Yeah. So um, when I was in grad school at Lehigh, finishing up my PhD, uh, it occurred to me. Only now do I know what I wanted to study. Like um, I wished, uh, I'm very happy with the career paths and educational paths uh, that I've taken, but it'd be great if at a young age, say middle school, early high school, you could go to a camp where for five days they teach you, say, four or five things each day, nine to five. Uh, so you learn 25 skills in five days. Uh, paint a painting, say a few words in another language, climb a rock wall, do some welding, uh, do some 3D design, uh, and see if you have a passion or aptitude for any of that kind of stuff. And I haven't seen you go to you know, wrestling camp or uh, uh, you know band camp, you know, but not something that gives you a buffet of skills, and you're not going to be an expert in them, but it's just going to expose you to that kind of stuff before you have to decide what you want to study for college, uh, if you want to go to college, or if you want to go into a trade, and uh, you found your, your passion there. So I thought what would be really fun would be to buy a farm about an hour outside a, a major city, and I was still not, I wasn't sure where I was gonna go for work, so the, the nation was open to me, and uh, turn the corn silo into a rock climbing gym, hopefully have a creek nearby where you can teach kayaking, and canoeing, and I figured I'd do camps Um, you know, June, July, August, and I would solicit um, graduate students who might be TAs in college and say if you're an educational student or if you're an engineering student spend a summer here and uh, teach kids this kind of stuff. So it was, um, and what we would do would be to teach like um, preparatory school students and have a pretty fair market rate to charge them maybe a little bit more so that we could have a camp at the end of the summer for kids who couldn't necessarily afford it, but we could subsidize it with this kind of structure. So uh, that was what I was really interested in, kind of nonprofit, educational, experiential camp. And then I um, got a job here in Columbus. Uh, Incidentally, uh, with such a narrow PhD, uh, there were only four places on the planet that might have hired me. And I interviewed at all of them. And one was a... That's uh, got to be some
1: nervous interviews. <laughs> you know, I tell
2: you, I tell you. I, I, I was kind of invited <laughs> to each of them, but it was a tenure track at Waseda University in Tokyo. Um, and uh, that was that was interesting. Um, it was uh, to work for a national lab called uh, NIST, the National Institute for Standards and Technology in D.C., and uh, or to work at University of Mississippi in Columbus, Mississippi, uh, or work for scientific forming in Columbus, Ohio. And Tokyo was too far. Uh, I have a cousin who's worked in the nuclear industry. Incidentally, his name is Osama. Uh, he goes by Sam after 9-11. Uh, he has some <laughs> little, <laughs> little, little challenges. But, um, and he's traveled and worked in Sweden, Italy, Saudi. And he said, look, don't work abroad. If you want to visit, if you want to travel, just have a vacation there. You know, If you're working elsewhere, the food's different, the language is different, you're far from your family, and it's still work. Uh, so he, he gave me some really good advice. Um, but, uh, and DC was too hot, trafficked, and crowded. My brother lived down there at the time. I'm very close with him. Uh, when he decided to leave around the time I was hiring, I said, well, that's one less incentive. Uh, Columbus, Mississippi was a little too rural for this uh, Yankee, and uh, Columbus, <laughs> Ohio was the, the porridge just right. Uh, I could still get sushi up until midnight, which is my check mark for a big city. Uh, it was small enough that the cost of living was great. Um, College town has a lot of uh, vibrancy. A lot of tech, a lot of manufacturing. It was great. Um, so uh, so when I came to Columbus, uh, I, I realized, you know, I, I'm a city boy, so I, do, I don't I do want to be an hour out of the city. I like those the trappings of uh, metropolitan life. Uh, and I like big warehouses. I think I'd love to live in a refurbished warehouse. But I um, uh, had a little duplex house. I uh, was renting that for a few hundred bucks a month. Had the nine to five. And uh, was kind of bored. And this is around when my sister invited me to go to her space in Vermont. And Layla, my sister, is the uh, she was for seven years the sculpture technician for a place called the Vermont Studio Center. And the the VSC is the world's largest residency program for artists and writers, where uh, every month thirty artists and writers uh, spend a few bucks to. S- to stay on, it's an old lumber mill. So they have barns on the campus. They have a giant wheel that still spins by the creek. Uh, They've converted the the big room into a four-star restaurant. And they have seven technicians. Art, uh, sculpture, photography, writing. uh, I forget the other few. And if you're a sculptor, then you go spend a month there to learn writing. If you're a writer, you learn photography. So you you, you inform your medium uh, by immersion in this kind of one-month-long camp. And Layla taught people how to sculpt. And that's where I gave that lecture that deeply embarrassed and uh, motivated me. But what I was really fascinated by was uh, for a whole month, you get people from artists from South Korea, from Brazil, uh, every state in the U.S. And they're uh, perfecting their trade. They're sharing tips and tricks uh, during the day. And then evenings, it's barbecues and campfires and beer, and they're all talking and, and, and sharing their uh, kind of life stories. I thought, this is the most dynamic environment I'd ever been in, wholly unlike 12 years of engineering school. Uh, you, know, you can imagine the difference. And uh, I said, you know what? I don't want to wait all year for one weekend uh, to do this. I used to go and teach this lecture uh, once a year. So I want this every day. And so I cast about for an art studio in Columbus. You know, engineering is cool, but art is sexy. And uh, I found the the Milo Arts Space. I don't know if people know it in Milo, Grogan. It's a hundred-year-old converted high school that is a live-work art loft space. So they have maybe forty or fifty old classrooms. Uh, each classroom is a uh, is a, a living space. I had one with a loft. Um, you know, irregularly functioning steam heater, uh, great drafty windows, it was fantastic. But it was that kind of culture where again, evenings and weekends, barbecues, trading tips and tricks, uh, communal living, everyone had one kitchen. It was a lot like what I imagine living in a dorm at an art college would be. Uh, So everyone's doing their stuff during the day or night and then also, uh, you know, sharing and learning. So I had my cake and I ate it too during the week. I would stay at my boring duplex in Dublin and weekends I'd go crash at Milo. And uh, that's where I thought, you know what, I wonder if I can stand up an educational program to teach kids technology through hands-on functional art projects. So uh, trick them into learning programming, trick them into learning design. And I, I liked the uh, kind of steampunk motif of brass and wood and lacquer, but things that functioned. So I made an Edison phonograph that played a uh, touch-sensitive LCD internet portal so you could hear Pandora, through an old Edison horn and, uh, you know, Vampire Weekend, real tinny. Uh, loved that kind of <laughs> stuff and uh, thought this is an interesting project. So, um, started that project there and uh, that kind of turned into, well, I need tools and uh, well, I'm learning from the web and uh, there's an interest in this so people like this mm-hmm. uh, and eventually graduated from Milo and rented my own garage and, uh, and started the foundry. And then following
1: from there, kind of how has it grown, and what does it look like today?
2: Mm. Uh, Stupendously, astoundingly, uh, surprisingly. uh, And this was how many years uh, ago? Nine years. So started in 2008, um, just pulled up (laughs) Craigslist, Columbus Real Estate, and looked for industrial spaces I could afford. And at the time, I had uh, two friends who wanted to help support me uh, in this venture, and they were going to Norway uh, for work for a year. And they said, you know, we need someone to house sit. And so I thought, originally I figured I'd be an engineer for my life. When I retired, I would explore these ridiculous ventures. I might start that camp for kids or community workshop. But then when this opportunity came up that I could save 700 bucks a month in rent for my house, I said, well, uh, maybe I I have this funny opportunity to save some money. Maybe I can throw that towards an industrial space and try for a year at this uh, community workshop. And if it was a spectacular success, quit the job, make it the full-time thing, and, and go off to the races. If it was an abysmal failure, well, I enjoyed trying. I made some friends. I'll wait 25 years, retire, and then do it again. So I found a, a garage, 2,400 square feet, uh, for 1,100 bucks a month. And I really foolishly thought, well, okay, I'm saving 700 for my house. Uh, 1,100, I can tighten my belt, 400 bucks a month. You know, I've got a decent salary as, a, as an engineer. Um, and uh, I didn't really understand trash, internet, security, insurance, uh, utilities, uh, all the <laughs> ancillary costs. We had to, yeah, so so I was pretty much losing my shirt. I, I had a pretty good disposable income, and I was very, very good at disposing of it uh, for, for about a year, two years, 10 years, frankly. Um, but uh, so we bought some tools, I bought some tools, I made a website, um, I threw the door open, and I said, if you wanna learn woodworking, if you wanna learn black swimming, come on in. And for two years, it was me and the wind and the mice, and uh, no one came in. And I realized I had done this backwards. Uh, we consult now with p- people all around the world on how to create their own maker spaces, their own startup neighborhoods, and it always starts with make your community first. You know, make a Facebook page, make a website, meet in coffee shops. Uh, you know, raise your flag that this is what you're doing. Attract 100 or 200 or 300 people uh, in a year or two. And then ask them, okay, how many people would give me 50 bucks a month if, if we started a venture? And that way you know right away what your market size is, how to price it. I did, however, have a, maybe 20 or so volunteers who used to hang out. And they helped me um, you know, run electric. They helped me seal the concrete floor, put in insulation in the ceiling. Um, we'd go to festivals. I'd bring a MIG welder and a generator out. And we'd have a pop-up tent. we replaced replace the canvas with... Uh, red welding curtains, and we'd have a big box of metal, and we'd have people say, okay, pick a piece of metal and point to where we should put it, and we weld up a statue in 12 hours, kind of interactively, um, and got some interest, but after a year, it was neither a spectacular success nor an abysmal failure, and uh, so I had to say, well, let's try one more year and uh, see if we can get uh, cash flow positive, uh, enough interest. Um, And after another year, it was still middling. A lot of interest, a lot of fun. I was meeting the kinds of folks I wanted to hang out with, but um, it was bleeding me dry. So I had to make a decision. Do I contract to a um, a private co-op? Let's say there are six people who want to split the rent, split the utilities, split the cost of tools. We lock the door to the public, but we have a place to be our own kind of private uh, making club. Um, Or do we go big and rent a much larger space Uh, throw myself off the cliff uh, financially um, because I would then not be able to pay for everything with my own income. I'm reliant on people to pay me dues and classes. And we rented a much bigger place, but uh, I started carving out studio space there. So we had maybe a dozen of our volunteers rented studio space, paid me a couple hundred bucks a month. So a model was starting to uh, materialize where maybe the people who rent carve out 30% of your space. That's rented studio space. That covers your rent. Um, maybe you've got 30 or 40 members paying it 25 bucks a month. Maybe that pays your utilities, uh, and then teach classes and the classes are your gravy, um, where you can afford new tools or maybe eventually pay for a salary for someone, um, eat dinner. Yeah, uh, I know, yeah, I, (laughs) I joke slash don't joke. Uh, I tighten my belt so far I could eat, uh, I could eat for $5 a day. It was. Uh, I looked for the highest ratio of non-fat food calories per dollar per minute prep time. This is how an engineer bachelor cooks. And I found it was uh, Bush's baked beans, I like the one with the onion flavor, and uh, turkey dogs. And I'd have a couple packets of oatmeal for breakfast and then I'd uh, pop the, the can open, I'd put one of the turkey dogs in, I'd eat half the beans, the whole dog, cold, uh, and I could eat in about three minutes and I'd stick the rest in the fridge and I'd eat the other half for dinner. And I lost maybe 15 pounds in the first year, but um, those were the kinds of bizarre. things Now you can I was write a doing. diet book. Uh, you know, yeah. Now, <laughs> now I do the ketogenic thing. That's a whole other conversation. Really interesting stuff. But um, I did that uh, for a year. Yeah, yeah. Well, what do you think?
0: Oh, I hated it, but I was doing it for <sighs> wrestling. Oh, so. Uh, they, they, I, when I had to wrestle 125 my junior year and I came in weighing about 150 pounds, they said, Yeah, oh we're going gonna to do the God.
1: ketogenic diet. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, and yeah. I said, Okay. Yeah, yeah. S- Significant difference, though, between doing it at a cal- cal- caloric deficit, here, sure. too, right. though. And-
2: oh, oh, totally. Uh, last year, so I wrestled in high school. It's one of the hardest mm-hmm. stuff I've ever done. Deeply respect anyone who does that sport. But um, last year, so I'm such a data driven person. I've written an app for myself that tracks my uh, my calories, my time, my money, my uh, mental discipline, and uh, um, and then um, and my weight, and I can see that. Last year, I did the caloric restriction, and I cut down to fifteen hundred calories uh, a day, and within you know two weeks, I had dropped you know uh, eight pounds, uh, but I uh, may- maybe less than that. But my night vision was going. Um, I was uh, like. Literally, I googled one. I was having trouble just seeing stuff at night, uh, like uh, I think diet and night vision or blurry vision and hypoglycemia came up. So I'm literally, you know, it's not good for you. I was tired. I was grumpy. <laughs> um, but the ketogenic thing, uh, I'm surprised I'm not hungry and I can eat 65% fat. Um, my blood work is better than it was before. It's bizarre. There's uh, a whole other conversation about why grain was at the bottom of the food pyramid for 50 years. Is actually, I think a A mistake slash too much lobbying from the evil big grain industry, uh, and uh, never thought that was a thing. Fat's not bad for you. Uh, That was vilified by big sugar. Uh, So things I've learned in the last year, but um, the keto thing's been much better, much easier. Mm -hmm. Um, But how how do
1: you notice that it correlated to your ability to think? Because. I do a lot of experiments with my body in the complete wrong way, almost accidentally, just because like I run a lot, I work out a lot, I study a lot, like I take everything to the extreme, and I'll you know I really like ice cream and sugary sweet foods, but then I'll go through phases where I'll eat nothing but like fruit or like really healthy things for like several days, and it's almost like a ketogenic situation. And I found that I'll go through phases where I'll start and I'll think really really clear when I'm eating healthy. But then like, I don't know if it's like losing the glucose in my brain or something like that. But if I get really tired towards the end of the week, like my thinking disappears then. And if I spike it up with some ice cream, I'm just like tackling the world Uh, again, uh, uh, you know? So it's like very interesting.
2: I I think it's this kind of self-introspection that uh, a lot of people don't do. I I think they, um, and this is where like in in high school, in middle school, in uh, elementary school, you learn about geography you learn about whales but I wish they would do things like uh, learning about yourself uh, and that the goal of life isn't necessarily learn a trade get a career be happy and the the things that make you happy enough time to do what you want Um, to know how to talk to people that might be interesting Uh, to live a healthy and happy life like I have never had a class on how to be happy I had uh, a phys ed class I had some nutrition but Never had like a, a class on how to introduce yourself to someone. Uh, if you're lucky, you've got either you're naturally extroverted. I am deeply naturally introverted, or you have got parents who teach you, peer groups who teach you. Um, but I'm still shocked that I think the most important life skills uh, are not actually taught. And so, I've been a fan of people like Timothy Ferris, Four Hour Work Week, uh, living experimentally and and empirically, and. Uh, um, the, uh, the thing that shocked me most, I've always had uh, <laughs> a very congested sinuses. Uh, as a kid, um, I was like a bulldog, like bulldogs don't know, they don't breathe great. Uh, they're just, <laughs> and, but they're happy as hell. And, and so I was happy as hell. Um, but, uh, um, and did the food allergy test thing. I was allergic to all the foods. So, foods. Is- uh, pretty much it, Chicken, rice, grapefruit juice, prune juice were the things that I wasn't allergic to, so uh, so I could I can mix eat those. those all up in one oh, I one nice t- stew. I told you, Josh, you know, for for two weeks at, at like eleven years old, that's all I ate, and I could actually breathe pretty clearly, but I hated life like this is not fun. So for forty three years, um, been you know hard to breathe, and that leads to problems sleeping, which leads to. Um, all sorts of life problems. So for the last year, I've been going to like an apnea doctor. Do you put that damn CPAP thing? Hated it all. Um, finally, I said, let me try keto. A number of my friends at the shop, who are the same kind of nootropic, uh, self-improving, um, Tim Ferris type people, suggested keto. Uh, four days into not eating wheat, and my nose was completely clear. And I'm like, oh, this has got to be a coincidence. And like the fifth day, sixth day, and now, if I stop, if I eat bread, if I drink beer, uh, you know, it, within another couple days, comes right back. So that's where I was deeply surprised at how much you know food impacts you. And I'm the kind of guy I'll eat food off the floor. Like uh, you know, germs are a joke. Uh, uh, I'll eat a week-old yogurt that's been sitting on my desk just to prove that I got good gut flora. You know, <laughs> but um, so so I never really valued. Uh, You know, we're we're biochemical reactors that can take whatever you put in it and give us the fuel you need. But you're right. There is a a huge impact. Uh, And then just getting used to um, detecting those waning mental signals where it takes a little extra motivation to answer that email or to concoct something new. um, Time to eat. Uh, And uh, especially if you're either keto or calorie restricted. But um, then there are cycles in the morning most energetic, most creative. That's when you have to do the stuff that requires the most mental discipline. And uh, do not check emails first thing in the morning because you're doing other people's work. uh, And by the time you've gotten that off your plate, if you ever get it off your plate, and it's time for you to compose your own project, your own thing, you've exhausted your reserves. And this is one thing most people don't consider too. I think most people know you can only run so far until you get tired. Um, Your muscles have a store of energy. Your brain's the same damn way. And uh, but no one because it doesn't cramp because it doesn't actually give you a painful uh, you know, neural message. We don't I think feel like the same mine way. might be cramping <laughs> in the last couple weeks. But continue. But, yeah, but I so I think understanding that uh, there is a reserve of mental discipline, which is why like Obama had only two colors of suits um, because just making that first decision in the morning chips away a little bit at that, uh, that decision exhaustion. So, uh, lead a life. This is why the Google guys, black t-shirt, blue jeans, like, uh, it's not there. Neither of these is a fashion statement. It's saving your mental reserves for the tasks you want to do.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, uh, you know, it's kind of an interesting, we got, we went down a little bit of a rabbit hole there, uh, but so let's jump back on track. Let's talk about kind of what the future of the idea foundry really looks like and maybe talk a little bit about some of the cooler uh, projects or things going on right now.
2: Yeah. Um so right now we're in a steep ascent uh from the 2400 square foot dirty hot sweaty garage we started in that flooded twice a year we had crickets every time it would. It, it was funny. <laughs> uh then we moved to a 10,000 square foot industrial complex the uh the unit next to us the fellow closed his business. Uh, we expanded into that, and then the unit next to that became available. So we had these three linear units in a long, kind of strip mall industrial complex. Went to 24,000 square feet in four years, and then had the opportunity to move to Franklinton and uh, moved into this beautiful 60,000 square foot warehouse. Uh, but I had no money, uh, couldn't really renovate the whole place. So we were grateful to get a couple of grants from the Columbus Foundation and from Art Place America. Uh, to build out our first floor, to build just the workstations, so just the tools. Welding, blacksmithing, 3D printing, laser cutting, woodworking, robotics, metalworking, jewelry, all that good stuff. But quickly we learned uh, years ago, the value of a place like the Idea Foundry isn't the tools, it's the people attracted to them, it's the community. And if we wanted to have a big event, 50 people, 100 people, we couldn't have it in the wood shop, we couldn't have it in the big project room. Um, So we needed to renovate that second floor and... um, and have an air-conditioned, noise-free, dust-free space uh, where we can have the kind of conversations we're doing right now. So um, tried to fundraise, had some trouble with that, but met some amazing people. uh, Christopher Celeste and Nancy Kramer have an angel uh, investment company called Hatch, which stands for Help at the Critical Hour. And they caught us at the critical hour. I tell you, it was make or break uh, for... (laughs) It was very, very close. Often, I'll visualize an airplane that has run out of gas and it can see the runway and it's trying to make it there. And I was wondering like, are we going to hit with the landing gear a hundred feet short and nose in and explode? Or are we going to make it? And it was, it was within inches. Um, But um, grab that pork and beans and hold on. (laughs) cold can. So thankfully they've helped us with uh, some investment and with a loan. We built out our second floor, into a co-working space with offices for startups, with uh, desks for co-working, event space, conference rooms where we can do podcasting ourselves, and we started doing that too. Um, And uh, now we've opened the doors to an entirely different type of market segment. So people who are the solopreneurs, who are a small business just starting out, they're not ready to rent three-year lease like the beautiful office you're in here right now. Um, They need a place to be a springboard, So uh, we're doing that and we're networking those people who are running businesses or providing services like graphic arts, web development, marketing, SEO optimization. We're networking those people with the makers who are making products. And if they want to start a business, creative or techie business, often they're really good at that, they're passionate about that, they don't, like me, they don't want to write a business plan, they don't want to make their website, they don't want to do a logo, do all their legal work. So if we can network those folks, passionate creatives, Uh, with the people who like to do the things they need done to succeed, then we've won. We've made a kind of an ecosystem, a one-stop shop for creative and tech startups. So right now, that's where we are. Opened about three, four months ago for the the co-working space. Um, Fully tenanted, all the offices are filled, but we're grateful to sell dedicated desks and co-working memberships. Um, And uh, that's what we're trying to attract. We're also trying to teach new types of classes. So instead of woodworking, learn marketing, uh, learn electronics or programming. Um, web design. And I think, you know, in a year or two, uh, we'll most likely have as many members as we can have on the first floor before we start banging elbows in the woodshop, as many members as we can accommodate on the second floor uh, until all the, you know, seats have butts and uh, and all the class calendar is completely full. So I think after about two years, and I think this means we'll double in both memberships, we'll be about maybe 1,500 people. Um, say a 1,000 workshop members and 500 co-working members. Then I think we do two things. We split into two new businesses. One is a media company because we make more content than we capture. Every day we got hundreds of people making amazing things and there are magazines like Make Magazine, which we love, um, that go and ask people, what are you doing in your living room? What are you doing in your garage? They aggregate other people's content. We're a fountain of content and websites need pages refreshed, newspapers need white paper filled. Um, So I think we do that. And the other thing we do is we become an e-learning facility. So uh, rather than Googling on YouTube how to weld and you get a thousand hits and you don't know which one's really really good or well produced uh, or valuable, I think we become honestly the world center for um, the kind of online making culture. Uh, And there's a whole Interesting thing we can do with augmented reality with Microsoft HoloLens where you wear safety goggles that are not just protecting your face and your eyes, but a virtual arrow can point to the real nut uh, and a picture of the wrench you need to loosen it to indicate how do you change the blade on a table saw. The nature of what it means to know something has changed now in the last 10 years when all of human knowledge is five seconds away on your smartphone, then what do you need to know? It's not what you need, it's, it's how you learn. And I joke that we've accidentally created a school where the answer to every question is Google it. Mm-hmm. So if that's the case, then what do you teach? And back to me growing up in a restaurant, the, uh, I think the mission of the Idea Foundry is to be a machine shop with a maitre d', so someone who welcomes you, makes you feel warm and welcome, hospitable, demystifies all the tools, and uh, and it's a fun place to be productive and sociable. So I think uh, we're doing that, we're on that steep ascent, and uh, in a couple of years I think we'll, uh, we'll evolve into one or two or three new creatures, I'm looking forward to it.
1: I think there's something to be said, though, to have somebody there or whether it's an individual or a group of people to reassure you that you're going the right direction and doing things right when you're venturing on a project or a new skill like that. Because there's always that kind of creep of insecurity that kind of pops in when something like that. You know, I notice even in academics or a skill that you're trying to learn. So it's kind of cool that you guys have that support system and then ranging mm-hmm. into even video learning and things like that will be Really exciting to see come out of the place. And then did Compton
2: Construction do your upstairs, is that correct? Yes, did uh, our first floor and our second floor. So he renovated our entire building. And honest to God, we couldn't have moved into that space three years ago without the the help, passion, and effort that he brought us. Uh, he, he was a member of ours beforehand. And uh, it's been fun seeing both um, Compton Construction and our architecture firm, Triad, uh, and then the Idea Foundry, Triad was started maybe 30 years ago by three principals. They turned over, and there are three new young folks: uh, Brent Foley, my friend, uh, who was the architect for our first phase, and then Blake starting his business, and then we starting ours in the in the real kind of professional sense. And watching us like uh, build together, uh, evolve together, get some credibility together. Uh, it's uh, at the same time that the neighborhood is coming online. 400 West Ridge is blown up. land Grant moved in. Um it's uh, uh, yeah, a very special city, very special time.
0: Yeah, and it's funny to kind of come full circle because when we interviewed Blake, he was actually where He was telling us about some of the stuff that was going on with building the Idea Foundry and working on those renovations. But uh, you look like you had something to say over there, Josh.
1: Yeah, no, I haven't seen any finished pictures of it either. And I'm really excited to see what it looks like when it's finished. I'll have to stop by. But I was just going to say my whole thought on the process in general is just everything is falling in place over there. You know, the city's coming together, you guys are doing amazing things, building amazing relationships, creating an ecosystem where I can't imagine that successful businesses aren't going to come out of. I mean, it's just, it's got to happen. They've already started. And that's awesome. That's super cool. It's it's something that makes me excited and makes me definitely want to get a part of myself just with my kind of desire to be surrounded by like-minded people. Um, And I think that we could sit here and we could talk with you forever. It's always really cool talking with someone who appreciates, And maybe a lot of people do, but they just don't study it as much and spend the time looking into it. It just appreciates knowledge in life and Mm. like analytically studying different things. So um, like we ran down that ketogenesis rabbit hole for a little (laughs) while. (laughs) I think to wrap it up, um, one thing that we always talk about before the end of the show is kind of our theme on the podcast is live uncomfortably because we found a lot of people that we interview or successful people in general in life that we've ran into have lived uncomfortably for extended periods Mm -hmm. of time. Mm -hmm. So interested to hear kind of what your take is on the phrase and kind of how it relates to your life.
2: Yeah, no, I've, uh, wholly, wholly embraced that. And in fact, um, on my, one of my first blog posts, I, uh, I scribbled kind of one of my philosophies and it was, uh, uh, comfort zone, a little circle and, uh, and a sign saying, don't be here. And there was an arrow pointing into it. Don't be here pointing all the way across the room. Yeah. Be, be a little outside of it, you know, certainly. So don't, don't crush yourself with, uh, you know, impossible expectations and goals, back to me personally liking these incrementally achievable goals that give me the confidence to keep going. Um, But, uh, you know, uh, Steve Jobs said, what was it? uh, Stay hungry, stay foolish. Uh, You know, he was so poor uh, as a college student, he would go to the the Hare Krishna uh, church because they had um, uh, potluck Friday night. So he'd go across town, you know, blocks. And he was Exposed to meditation and a lot of the the kind of Eastern culture that has informed a lot of his um, kind of inner thinking. And then staying foolish, uh, he took a calligraphy class for no good reason. And that's why Max had 100 fonts instead of the IBMs just having the conventional computer kind of thing. uh, And that captured the hearts of the designers. uh, And you capture them and you've captured the the design world. So uh, I love doing little bit ridiculous things, uh, living a little bit on edge. Frankly, back to keto, the thing I like about keto is technically you're always starving uh, and that you have to keep moving. You have to keep hunting. You have to, in order to Man, keep moving. And you're selling it right, right like, now. <laughs> like like, like <laughs> you know, sharks, I've heard, you know drown if they stop moving. So you know keep, uh, keep it going. And I think um, that hunger, this is one of the reasons why we're a for-profit business, actually. We're, we call ourselves a, a social enterprise or a for-more-than-profit rather than a non-profit, because if we're not always hustling to make something that other people are willing to pay for, then we're not doing something right, as opposed to we try to get a grant, which is hard, and if you get it, you've got some runway, but you're not always pivoting, you're not always hustling, you're not always addressing uh, what the market wants. So, uh, and, and that means, you know, never really sitting back, never really being comfortable. Uh, and uh, for me personally, that, that, that's been working. I don't think it's for everyone, uh, and I respect people who uh, who like uh, a little more stability and, and a little more comfort, and the, the worst fact about myself is i'm actually a hedonist you know i love luxury i love decadence i'm just a very bad hedonist i'm very bad at uh just sitting back and vacating as i say uh so um but yeah no um be uncomfortable i think that's a great place to wrap up there alex but
0: you have any last words for our guests or not our guests our listeners
2: (laughs) uh no only uh you know we've started podcasting the foundry too and i know how hard it is, frankly, to do what you're doing, both the the technical gear on the table here and the content uh, and the preparation. And you guys have done a lot more preparation. You've taught me what we need to do to have a successful podcast. So I appreciate the invitation. And uh, um, yeah, thanks for the chance.
0: Hey, thanks a lot, Alex. And uh, thanks a lot for listening, Conquerors. We hope
2: you guys enjoyed that episode and learned a lot
0: uh, about ketogenesis in particular. And uh, (laughs) we will talk to you guys next week. If you like that episode, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, instagram social media we're all over the place guys share it with your friends also want to ask you if you could do us a big favor check out that podcast app you're listening to us on and go ahead and click that subscribe button again it really helps us out and it makes sure you guys never miss a single episode of conquering columbus last thing we want to do before we let you go here is give one last shout out to all of our incredible sponsors and that starts with awh AWH are builders of exceptional digital products for the web and mobile that drive business for select growth companies. With over 4,500 applications developed and 10 million users enjoying AWH applications, they are focused on solving problems and improving lives through better software applications. If you want to find out more about AWH, check out awh.net, which will be linked in the show notes, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you.
1: Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by The Sundown Group. For those of you who don't know who they are, The Sundown Group is an Ohio nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, talent, and capital through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout Ohio. More information on the web at sundownfirst.org. And our last sponsor is Facilities Management Express, or FMX for short. FMX is actually founded and headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio. They're a startup software company. What's really cool about them, is a lot of competitors in this space, but they made a name for themselves by designing an easy-to-use and tailored-fit facilities maintenance and management software. They serve industries ranging from churches and schools to property management, manufacturing, and fast casual restaurants. You can learn more or check out a free trial at gofmx.com.
0: Mike here again. And if you want to be a sponsor of Conquering Columbus and have your message heard by conquerors across the city please reach out to me at mike at conquering there will be a quick survey in the show notes of today's episode and if you guys could fill that out for us we'd really appreciate it all right folks that's all we got we'll talk to you next week you can drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment and i might get you know my head kicked in in the beginning but i'll find a way to survive i'll find a
1: way to get the job done not just be status quo a desire to not be average this is conquering columbus